Turn with me to 2 Chronicles 32. Yes, it's still Wednesday night. Yes, we're still in Isaiah, and you can turn there as well. You can put a finger in Isaiah 37. We're still in Isaiah, and we will be for a few weeks until we turn things over to Rob for a summer in 1 Peter. But between now and that, we're finishing up this section of Isaiah dedicated not so much to prophecy, but to history. And it's a section, we've, we've mentioned this, that shows up not only in Isaiah, but in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. Must be important if the Lord records it three times in his word. And because it's important, I want to slow down just a little bit tonight and squeeze a little bit more juice out of the passages that we've already read. We know in good Bible study there's observation, interpretation, and application. In our study through Isaiah, we've, we've gone heavy on those first two. A disproportionate amount of our time together has been spent over these last, not quite a year, these last nine months, on observation interpretation because Isaiah is, is some deep slogging. It's prophecy and it's poetry and it's chewy. But here in this section, chapter 36 to 39, it's mostly prose, not poetry. It's mostly history, not prophecy. So we should be able to slow down just a little bit and get a little application. Been doing that a little, I want to do it more tonight. Quick refresher on, on the observation and interpretation of what we talked about last week and the week before, in case you weren't with us. The Assyrians are invading. It's 701 BC. And just when it seems all is lost, 185,000 from the invading army are killed, after which things quiet down. And if you look forward from this point, in 2 Kings 21, for example, we can't look forward in, in Isaiah from this point. Um, but in 2 Kings 21, the, the historical per, or the, the parallel perspective, Hezekiah then takes advantage of this calm, this respite that the Lord miraculously provides, and he begins actively investing, mentoring his son to be king. You track down the dates and cross-reference. Hezekiah is king for four more years. Well, actually, he's, he's, he's king for 14 more years. He's king until 687 B.C., but his son Manasseh is co-regent. They share the throne starting in 697 B.C., starting when Manasseh was 12. But the last event that the Bible gives us about the life of Hezekiah is the defeat of the Assyrians. It's the last major epoch in his, his life. Isaiah is going to talk more about Hezekiah, but he actually goes backward from this point. In chapter 38, we go flashback in Isaiah, and we talk about things that come before the things that we read in chapters 36 and 37. I don't want to go there yet. Tonight, before we flash back, let's sit with this invasion just a little longer. We said last week and the week before, Sennacherib bears a striking resemblance to who? Antichrist. Yeah, say it loud. Be proud. Yeah. 
Sennacherib bears a striking resemblance to Antichrist. And, and we've talked about some of the prophetic implications that this narrative has for the future invasion, the future attack of Jerusalem, led by the armies of Antichrist. But there are present implications we've only touched on. We've just scratched the surface of the present implications of the spirit of Antichrist in our lives today. Because the spirit of Antichrist is busy in the work in the, in, the, in the world today. John told us that. Jesus told us that. The spirit of Antichrist is alive and well and opposing the work of God and opposing God's people. So I want to talk a little bit tonight about dealing with Sennacherib in our lives. 2 Chronicles 32, the scene opens where, we, where we've been the last couple of weeks. 7-1 BC, like I said. Assyrians have marched through all of Judah. Overthrown 46 fortified cities. Now they're ready to attack the capital. It's high noon, and, and he sends the, the Rabshakeh, he sends an ambassador, hey, why don't you surrender, because we all know how the story is going to end. Sennacherib, we know, is busy back at Lachish. The Egyptians have rallied. They're, they're distracting him. They're opening a second front. But if we think about Sennacherib as a stand-in for Antichrist, he's also... Go with me on this. A bit of a stand-in for Satan himself. Because when Antichrist is invading, when it's his turn to, to try to sack Jerusalem, pretty good chance, I can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, but pretty good chance at that point he's indwelt, he's possessed by Satan himself. So we can almost look at them as one and the same at this point, is, is my point. And if we look at Sennacherib then, we see a reminder of one of Satan's favorite strategies, which is to sit back and let other people do his dirty work for him. Sennacherib, remember from our study, he doesn't go out and lead the army, not this time. He's not, he's not out there on the front line. He's not even brokering this, this, this proposed surrender. He's not coming against God's people personally. And yeah, there's military reasons for that, but it's a reminder Satan likes to work by proxy. He usually, not always, but usually attacks through intermediaries. Makes sense, after all. Satan's one guy. He's constrained by space and time, the same as we are. One guy, he can only be in one place. So what does he do? He leverages events, he leverages circumstances, he deploys people to drag us down. And if we look at the example that we read, the Rabshakeh coming with, with a force behind him, Rabshakeh presented himself on the one hand as, look, if you don't surrender, we're going to nuke you. But on the other hand, there was a stick, but there was also a carrot. But if you surrender, hey, fig trees for everybody. Peace and prosperity. You're going to be better off with us. Satan deploys people who present themselves as allies. They show up offering to help with lavish promises. Things are going to be better. We're going to be richer. Our lives are going to be pleasant if we just let Satan have his way. They rarely come out and say that. When was the last time someone said to you, you know, you should really bail on this Jesus thing and just worship Satan? I mean, maybe that's happened once in your life. It's happened once in my life, actually. You know, you, you, it's, you probably... You know, somebody has talked to you about the fever dream. What if, what if Jesus is really evil and Satan is really good and we have it backwards? I actually had somebody who was dead serious about that conversation once. But once. 
in, in, in 30 years of walking with the Lord. People rarely come out and, and, and just say, hey, side with Satan. Because that would activate resistance, right? That would, we'd, we'd get our guard up. We'd say, wait a minute, no. I'm not, but, 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 but more commonly, people come in obliquely. They come in at an angle. And they undermine the truth claims of Scripture. They undermine our relationship with God. Hey, God helps those who help themselves. Well, that sounds spiritual. That sounds like, you know, a, a, a path to, to peace and prosperity. It's not biblical. But come to think of it, I mean, where is God? He wasn't here when I needed him last week for the thing and the place. That I, and he wasn't here the time before that. He left me high and dry. Yeah, maybe, maybe I do need to take charge of my life. Maybe I do need to, 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 to not rely so much on an invisible God. If we didn't know before, I'm, I'm, I'm actually back in, in, in Isaiah. If we didn't know before verse 16, if we didn't know before, Sennacher, uh, before Sennacherib's guy, the Rabshakeh, starts making these elaborate promises, we know, we know at that point, because he does the same thing that uh, Satan did to Eve in the garden. He does the same thing that Satan did to Jesus in the wilderness. Has God said, you will not surely die? God's holding out on you. Satan's favorite three lies, they're really his only three lies. He just comes up, he just deploys them again and again with different wording and different order and different places and times, but it's the same three lies again and again. It's his signature. It's his MO. Sow suspicion, deny death, and promise prosperity. And all of that appeals to our sin nature, right? Our sin nature wants to distrust God, wants to discount his love, wants to doubt the consequences of living apart from him. We want to find a shortcut to heaven. And we want to get there in our own strength, be our own God. Because that's our sin nature, it doesn't take much. Right confluence of people and events and words whispered in our ear doesn't take much to turn us against ourselves. Again, it's what he did with Eve, what he tried to do with Jesus, tempting him in the wilderness. It's what he tries to do with us. Satan can't possess us the way I think he possesses Antichrist. Can't even touch us without God's permission. We get that from the book of Job, right? His best play then is to do what Rabshakeh does on Sennacherib's behalf, try to convince us to surrender, try to convince us to roll over and show our belly. Don't trust the invisible God. Trust what you can see. Trust what you yourself can do. God will leverage people, well-intentioned people oftentimes. I'm sorry, Satan will leverage people, well-intentioned people oftentimes, to pull us away from God. I said my sentence backwards. Satan will also leverage our problems to drag us down, to drag us away from God, because he knows us. Satan's a master psychologist. He's had 4,000 years or more to study the human race. He knows us as a species. He knows us individually, which means he knows how to mess with us. He knows how to use our struggles to shame and condemn us. Think about in your life. Think about your sin of choice, that thing that you struggle with. I'm looking forward to getting to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, because then I can tell my Raul Reese story 
about, I remember Rawl at, 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 at a conference teaching on this. He says, okay, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he pauses and he says, okay, what that means is don't do that. And whatever came to your mind when I said don't do that, that is the that that you should not do. It's so true. Don't do that. Oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. You see? We all have a that. We all have an Achilles heel that Satan knows and keeps going after, keeps reminding us of. How does he do it? Not direct attack. Because he can't, he can't win in a direct fight. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. If we invoke the name Jesus, if we battle in the power of the Holy Spirit, Satan loses 10 out of 10 times. It's part of why he doesn't show up personally. He, he, yeah, he can't be everywhere. He's not all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. But it's also good tactical maneuver. If Satan showed up and said, ah, you know, I'm Satan, we would be more likely to run to Jesus and say, hey, Satan's picking on me, and Satan would lose. He doesn't want to be on the losing end of that deal, so he's sneaky. He avoids the direct attack, and rather than the, the full frontal onslaught, he goes guerrilla warfare. He launches an insurgency, and he tries to turn us against ourselves. Notice Sennacherib does the same thing. Hezekiah's ambassadors say, hey, can we, can we speak your language? Because we don't want the people on the wall to hear. And they say, no, we're, we're going to shout in Hebrew so they can hear. We're going to talk to the people on the wall and tell them, hey, rise up. Your government doesn't have your best interests at heart. Don't listen to Hezekiah. Don't listen to the king. You should surrender. Satan does the same thing to us. Who is supposed to be our government? God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, all of those things. And Satan can't win against any of them, so he starts asking questions. He starts sowing doubt. He can't plant ideas in our mind. He's not that powerful, but he can make sure we come across them. He can make sure that someone speaks them to us, that we read them, that we hear them on the TV. He's God of this world. He's got a lot of, he can't put ideas in our mind, but he can do a lot of things. It's not hard for him to make sure that we come across seeds of doubt. The challenge is to not let them take root. But we will come across seeds of doubt. Hey, maybe your problems aren't problems and you're getting hyped over nothing. Maybe God's expectations of you aren't realistic. Maybe his expectations aren't really expectations and your Bible needs to be updated. Maybe we need to rethink this whole living for God. Maybe he's a lot less invested in who we are and what we do. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I wonder. It makes sense. I think I like that answer better. Maybe I'll try it. I got a call from somebody last week, um, brother from another church, struggling with sexual sin. And he, he, he calls me and he's all spun out. First 10 minutes of the call were just, just de-escalating the brother because he'd had a conversation with his pastor and he didn't like what his pastor had to say. So he called me hoping I would disagree. You know, the first question I asked was, what does your pastor say? And he told me, and, and he said, well, he told his pastor, well, I'm going to call Patrick. And he said, good, call Patrick. <laughs> and, 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 the, and his question revolved around, has God said? Play number one on Satan's three-play playlist. 
Has God said, is pornography really bad? I mean, it's better than adultery, isn't it? Who am I hurting? Is masturbation really sin? Is it always sin? Who am I hurting? What about premarital sex? And if we're engaged, what's the difference? Does, isn't, isn't a lot of this cultural? Doesn't this fall under the same category as a lot of the, the mosaic laws where it's obsolete, it was for a place and a time? And, and you know, the short answer, no. Those are things that were reaffirmed in the New Testament. But, but where he was going was, maybe I can't trust my Bible. And maybe, maybe that's why it doesn't work for me. Maybe that's why I'm struggling. And, and maybe I just need the, to throw the whole thing away. And I, we had an okay conversation. Um, he, he heard me, at least. I'm not sure that he agreed with me. You know, I, I walked him through how, how he was reaching some, some bad conclusions. But then, then, then his fallback, he texted me later that day. He's like, but is any of this really such a big deal? I mean, Jesus died for it, right? Play number two, you will not surely die. Actions don't have consequences. Jesus died for this, right? So, so doubt the consequences. Jesus died for my sin, so by definition, it can't keep me out of heaven because I've confessed Jesus, so what's the big deal? I'm covered with grace. What's, what's the rebuttal to that? God. Yeah, we can't overcome sin, but Christ through us, Christ in us, God the Holy Spirit can. And part of why we're here is for people to watch that, to be an example to the unbeliever of a life lived set apart, to be an example to the believer. Yeah, you really can grow. Sanctification is a real thing. Overcoming happens. It's a way to love people in our lives. Because when I'm the more I'm devoted to God, the less I'm, I'm dragging along my sin, the more God's love is going to flow through me. Also, the more I'm going to draw close to God. Sin hinders my fellowship with God, but dependency, yieldedness to the Holy Spirit, sweetens my fellowship with God, sweetens it and deepens it. Yeah, but life is better with my sin. That's third play. God's holding out on me. I like my sin. And when I don't sin, I get miserable. I'm denying my own biology. I'm warring with my own body. And even if I, if I you know, try to do this, I'm just going to lose anyway, so isn't it better to just get it over with and save the time? My answer was, who says we're going to lose? And, and it was funny listening to, to Pastor Steve talk this weekend because he made the same point on a completely different subject. He was talking about cancer he did this one service. I'm not sure that he said this both services, but he was talking about cancer, and he was talking about the effect that a, a prognosis has on the patient. And he said, basically, study after study shows if you tell a patient they're going to live for three months, they live for three months. If you say you're going to live for six months, they live for six months. If they say you're going to live for two, you live for two years. Our mind is a powerful thing. And, and if we believe we're going to lose, then very likely we will lose. But what if we believe that we can win? What if we believe that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us? All the things that God calls us to. If we decide, well, I'm going to lose, well, then you might as well lose. But what if the truth is we're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus? What if the truth is greater is he who is in us? What if we are more than overcomers? And, and, I, and I pull that in because it's, it, well, it just happened and it's fresh in my mind. I pull that in because 
sexual sin is destroying families and ministries. It's sidelining believers. It's quenching the spirit. It's, it's killing evangelism. And, and statistically, someone in your life, someone close to you is struggling in that way. But you know, even if none of that were true, I still didn't waste five minutes of your life because sin is sin is sin is sin. And translate whatever I just said into the key of that sin for you. Don't be conformed to this world, but be renewed by the renewing of your mind. Don't do that. Whatever that is, I promise Satan is coming at you with those same three lies about your that. That it's not really sin. That it doesn't have consequences. That God's holding out on you. This is why we're in 2 Corinthians 32. <laughs> One more week here to answer this question. What do we do? Because if we do nothing then Satan wins by default. If we do nothing, Satan is going to keep chirping in our ear with all of his lies, and we're eventually going to believe at least some of them somewhat. And the work that the Lord desires to do in us and through us is going to be limited. Our worship and our sanctification will be limited. Our ministry, our love, our witness in this world will, be, will suffer. God's light in us and shining forth out of us will be darkened then it doesn't have to be that way. Because look, Hezekiah prevailed. Most of you were here last week. You remember. You've read, you've read the story before. Hezekiah prevails. God prevails. God's people prevail. Jerusalem could have fallen right there, should have by all rights, but she didn't because Hezekiah didn't. And what did Hezekiah do? What did he get right in the days leading up to this conflict? Different account in Chronicles than we get in Isaiah or Kings. Second, Second Chronicles chapter 32, verse 1. After these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. He encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself, and we know that he did. But what, what, what deeds of faithfulness? We talked about this two weeks ago. Hezekiah tore down the high places. He, he demolished the idols. This was a season of uncharacteristic obedience. Almost a revival. Doesn't mean freedom from opposition. In fact, quite the opposite. When we, when we get serious, we talked about this, when we get serious about following God, when we hand over to God something that the enemy has, has had a grip on, we usually get more opposition, not less. Steps of obedience all but guarantee opposition. Why? Satan doesn't want to give up ground that he's been occupying. He knows that, that, that right after we say, no, this belongs to Jesus, and I'm going to do something that I haven't done before or I haven't done lately, this belongs to Jesus now, right after that, one of two things is going to happen. We're either going to doubt. I hope it belongs to Jesus. I think it does. I think I'm doing the right thing. I think I can hold it. I think God is on my side. Or at the other end of the spectrum, we, we, we have an inordinate confidence. I did this. I'm a warrior for Christ. Either way, prime time for the enemy. Because we're either doubting or we're prideful. So Satan, finite being, limited resources, he knows that's a good time to attack. And God has at least one reason to let him. He can't touch us without God's permission, but this is a time that God might just let him. Why? He knows how we are too. God made us. He knows that we're stubborn and prideful and intent on doing this world on our own. And without opposition, 
without someone or something to battle, to push against, without something or someone that scares us a little bit, greater than us, more powerful than us, we'll try to do this world on our own. God allows opposition so we'll be reminded we need him. And good things happen when we remember we need him. Remember Paul when, when we were reading through 2 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians too, but especially 2 Corinthians. What makes Paul's ministry, his teaching, his letters so powerful, so, so just dripping with Christ? He had to be that close to God because, because attacks from without and within and shipwrecks and perils and sleeplessness and, and robbers and stoning and lashing, he had no choice but to depend on God because God put reminders of, uh, of that in his life daily. So Second Chronicles 32.1 Judah's getting serious. Revival is, is happening. People are drawing close to God. Idols are being torn down. And, and so Satan, in the person of Sennacherib, comes along, starts dealing his three lies. What does Hezekiah do? When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. We talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago, but let's talk about it again. And let's talk about it keeping in mind that last week we followed Hezekiah as he, as he went to the temple and as he prayed, as he fell on the, his face and cried out to the Lord, and as he went to Isaiah and said, Isaiah, you got to pray for us because I don't know if God's going to hear my prayer, but he'll hear yours and you got to talk to him. Not to contradict that because we said, hey, right on. <laughs> this is Hezekiah getting it right. But in addition to that, besides that, Hezekiah does a few other things right as well. We don't get it from Isaiah, we get it here. And we just read one of them. Hezekiah consults with his leaders and his commanders. Hezekiah was king, which, which means he consulted with the people closest to him. People that he chose to be close to him. People loyal to him, people that he trusted. Guys, we got an imminent threat because the Assyrians are like 30 miles away. Clear and present danger, what do we do? Who's got an idea? Who wants to go first? Let's go around the room question who are your leaders and commanders who are the people that you consult with when satan is knocking at your front door i harp on this a lot i get that i can't help it because here it is again in the black letter of god's word hezekiah sees danger approaching one of the first things that he does talks to his guys which means that he had guys which means that he decided ahead of time who his guys were, who were the people in his life that loved God and loved him and that he could count on for godly counsel. People that he could count on to point him to God, to remind him of what's true when circumstances and people were causing him to doubt. Do you have people in your life? People that you've already decided to let into your life, to share your secrets, to understand your weaknesses, not as a substitute for God, that would be bad. Do you have people that will help point you back to God when you need it? People who will help you follow God. Who are the people that you know that love God and love you? That you go to on a regular basis and say, hey, I'm coming to you as my best self because I want you to know what my worst self is capable of. I want you to know how to pray for me. And here's what, here's, here's what you can remind me of when I doubt, when I get in a funk, when I get in a pit. Here's what you can ask me. 
to figure out, help me figure out if I'm on my way to a pit. Here's the lies that I know that Satan wields against me. And I want you to know so you can ask me if they're working. And if I come to you and I say, hey, the enemy's at the gates. He's bearing down and I'm not sure what to do. You'll have some context. You'll know enough about me to point me back in the right direction. Do you have someone like that in your life? Someone besides your spouse? Because you need to. Hezekiah is king of Judah. He's got powerful resources at his disposal. He still needed people. He was dealing with idolatry in the kingdom. He still needed guys to remind him of what was true when the attack came. Patrick, I'm not under attack. Things are going well. This is, a, God and I are good, good. That's the best time to seek out allies. Because if you have those people when things are good, when you're not in the enemy's sights, you're more likely to call upon them when the enemy pulls up to the gate. Because, because then it's a lower barrier to participation. You already have some momentum. You already have some relationship. You don't have to start from the beginning and explain how did you get here and why is Satan attacking in this part of your life? And, you know, maybe this isn't really a big deal. I know someone who did this. and No, they know you because you've let them know you. They know your strengths and struggles because you've told them. And so you can get right to it. Hey, I'm here again. It's dark again. I'm in the pit again. Can we pray? Can we problem solve? Help me get back to Jesus. Number one, Hezekiah went to his guys because he had guys. That's almost number zero. <laughs> Hezekiah went to his guys. Number two, what did he and his guys focus on? Still verse three, let's make sure this advancing army doesn't have water. The Assyrians practiced siege warfare. They would basically surround the city and starve them out or, or, or cut off their water supply because that works a lot faster. Surround them, weaken them, wait for them to surrender. Hezekiah and his men decide, hey, what if we don't give them the chance? What if we make sure they're the ones having a hard time getting water? Verse 4, thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs in the brook that ran through the land, saying, why should the king of Assyria come and find much water? They dammed up the streams, they capped the wells, they filled in the ponds. They made it hard for the enemy to camp in their life. And so should we. So here's the second thing that, that Hezekiah did right. He made it hard for the enemy to camp in the life of the people of Jerusalem. Question, are you making it easy for the enemy to camp in your life? What flow do you have that allows the presence of Satan to continue or even prosper? kind of thing an accountability partner would ask, but tonight I'm asking. We've all heard the story about the Native American who describes his life as a continual battle between the two wolves that lie, live within him, the white wolf that wants to do good, the black wolf that wants to do evil. Which one prevails? The one he feeds. It's not a perfect analogy because light and dark in our world aren't, aren't equal. Life isn't Star Wars. In our world, light drives out darkness. But there's still a lot of truth to that idea, Right? The force that wins the day-to-day -day battle in our lives is the one we feed. Are we feeding Satan? Does he have water supply? Does he have a supply line in our heart, in our lives? Like what, Patrick? I'm not following. Like unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin is fertile ground for Satan to prosper in our hearts. 
Scripture teaches that unconfessed sin hinders our relationship with God. It also strengthens Satan's hold on us. When we have unconfessed sin in our lives, God's voice gets softer, Satan's voice gets stronger, the lies get louder, God isn't there, he doesn't care, you're not forgiven, you're not even loved, you might as well quit. Unconfessed sin feeds Satan, bitterness feeds Satan. Something happened and it shouldn't have happened and it never should happen and I can't let it go and, and now I see everything through that lens. I was persecuted and nobody helped me. I was accused and no one believed me. I became ill and no one could cure me. I had a dream and someone took it from me, so I don't trust God, I don't trust anyone. I'm not gonna let God or anybody else love me. I'm not gonna let somebody get close to me because when they get close to me, they disappoint me. I'm never gonna let anyone get close again. Feed Satan. Because if we isolate from God and we isolate from God's people and isolate from God's word, who's left? Satan there, cheering us on in the lies that we're believing. Take care of yourself, no one else will. Look out for yourself, no one else does. You're better off without God. He just let you get hurt. I told myself, that, that more than anything kept me from coming to Christ. I believed the Bible for two years before I, before I surrendered to Christ because I didn't want to get let down again. Everyone in my life that I'd let get, get close, everyone I'd, I'd trusted, everyone I'd, I'd let get close had hurt me, had betrayed me. Trust God? If I didn't trust God, God couldn't disappoint me. But if I trusted God, I was committed because if I trust God and he lets me down, well then it really, then what was the point of living? And I didn't have this all figured out like this concisely, but that's what was going on. I didn't want to risk God disappointing me like everyone else had, which left Satan having a field day. He had an express train from my heart to my brain and back again. Unforgiveness, same thing. Jesus tells us if we don't forgive, we won't know the fruit of being forgiven ourselves. Fellowship with God will get choked out. Satan's voice wins by default. It does, it's not just true for unbelievers. It's true in the hearts of minds of believers. If we keep feeding the enemy, if we keep, you know, like, like you put corn out for deer and, and, and then a day turns on the calendar and you shoot them in the head. If we keep putting corn out for Satan, keep supplying him with everything he needs to remain present and active in our lives, we shouldn't be surprised when he thrives, when he chokes out God's voice. I've counseled many abuse survivors over the years. Let, let's take unforgiveness and, and let's, let's, let's use an example that most of us can empathize with. People who are supposed to love and protect someone instead harms them or protects the person who harms them. We can understand that, but what's the fruit of unforgiveness? Consider the lies that that invites. I can't forgive this person because some sins can't be forgiven. Okay, then by extension, my sins can't be forgiven. I can't forgive this person because some things just can't be fixed. Some, some things all the king's horses and all the king's men can't, can't put it back together. Okay, then by extension, I'm damaged irreparably and forever. I can't forgive because some things can't be forgiven, so I can't expect forgiveness because I've done bad things and no one is gonna love me because of them. I can't forgive because God let that happen. 
God can't protect me. God can't save me. I have no use for God. Unforgiveness metastasizes like cancer. Lies beget lies beget more lies. And, and look, I get mental illness is a big complicated subject. I, three years of grad school, I know less now than, than when I started. But I'll say this, an overwhelming number of people that have counseled with psychological symptoms, depression, bipolar, psychosis, awful lot of them also have unconfessed sin or bitterness or most commonly unforgiveness very present in their lives. Not suppressed, not repressed, not pushed down, active. I'm not saying all psychological illness is attributable to, to that. The brain is way more complicated. The brain is part of our body. Our body is part of the fallen universe, and it's subject to illness and injury and degradation. I'm just saying, when we feed the enemy, when we invite him and supply him in our lives, the effects go way beyond what we anticipate in our body, in our mind, in our soul. And sometimes feeding and supplying the enemy is even more subtle than anything I'm talking about. Bitterness, unforgiveness, unconfessed sin, that's hard stuff. That's stuff that takes place within ourselves. But, but what about eye stuff and ear stuff? What about the, the, the stuff that we watch, the music we listen to? What lies of the enemy are we fueling? What ground are we giving him? What lies are we fortifying? Oh, come on, Patrick, I just filter out the sex and the violence. Yeah, and the humanism and the atheism and the relativism. Yeah, that too. Okay, the point is, though, you're having to filter it out. You're deliberately exposing yourself to a lie that you're going to have to argue against later. Or not. Oh, you know, the, the, the good guy killed the bad guy in revenge. Okay, the Bible has something to say about that, and it's not, you know. Oh, wow, you know, dude slept with hot girlfriend. Yeah, the Bible has something to say about that, too. Yeah, I know, but I know what the Bible says. Okay, but you're having to spend the time and the energy having that argument, or, or not. You're inviting Satan into your home, into your eyes, into your mind. You're saying to Satan, hey, lie to me. I can take it. Immerse me in an unbiblical worldview. I'll sort it out. Can we? Do we? I mean, does it really make sense to spend more time with Satan's lies than we spend with the truth and expect Satan to end up weaker? To influence us less? How does that math work? And it's not like Satan even has to win. It's not, I said this before, it's not like he has to convince us. He can't win, not if we're in Christ. All he's got to do is weaken us, dishearten us. All he has to do is convince us that we can't win or that the fight isn't worth it. All he has to do is redefine winning. We're winning if we still believe in God. If we haven't, if we haven't gone apostate yet. We're winning if we still know where our Bible is. We're winning if we still pray, you know, when we're in enough trouble. We're winning if we make it to church more than never. We're, those things aren't winning. That's barely breaking even. Hey I, hey, I haven't lost my salvation yet. Still saved, hashtag winning. No, that, that, that's existing. Winning is living our lives in a way that glorifies God. Winning is making it our mission every day to love God and love people. And if Satan is alive and well and thriving in my life, it's going to be hard to do that. If I'm feeding Satan's lies in my heart, he's going to keep working on me, chipping away at me. 
convincing me to lower the bar, to change the goal. He's going to remind me life is hard and people disappoint. Yet life is hard. People disappoint. That's not going to change. But if we focus overly on that, then our goal is, well, then I'm not going to thrive in this life. People aren't going to change. I'm not going to change. All I can expect out of this life is to survive it and hope it's better on the other side. And all of a sudden, I'm not playing to win. All of a sudden, I'm playing to not lose. All of a sudden, life is not a race to be won the way that Paul talks about, with the way that the author of Hebrews talks about. It's not a race to be won. It's not a challenge to be met and overcome in the power of Christ. It's something to be avoided and hid from and, and at every opportunity, instead of engaging the world in the name of Jesus, I escape. I hide, I hunker down. Those are some of the things that happen when we strengthen Satan in and around our lives. How do we keep from doing that? Again, this is where, this is where friends help. Brothers, if you're a brother, sisters, if you're a sister, asking, hey, where's your time go? Where does your energy go? Where does your heart camp out? What can you do to dam up the, the supply of, of, of fuel to the enemy? What can you do to cut off the things that's allowing him to, to occupy space and time in your life? And of course, that's only half the equation. Here's number three. Number two was cut off the enemy's water supply. Number three is ensure your own. We don't see it here, but 2 Kings 20, 20 is, is where Hezekiah digs the tunnel. And you can still visit the tunnel today. Some of you have walked through it. The tunnel from the springs of, of, of Gihon on the outside to the pool of Siloam on the inside. Uninterrupted flow of water into the city to allow them, what? To withstand a siege. Quite an engineering feat, almost 1,800 feet of tunnel, 30 feet of it underground through solid rock. There's an example for us there. Water is what in Scripture? Both. Water for drinking is the Holy Spirit. Water for washing is the Word of God. What are we doing to ensure a continual supply of both in our lives? Because it's not going to happen spontaneously. Satan's too good at distracting. The baby's going to cry. The phone is going to ring. Work is going to call. There's always something important. we got to work at it. Like Hezekiah worked to get water into the city. He dug for it. He built walls. He created space to ensure an uninterrupted flow. Do we do that with God's word? Do we dig and create space and walls and barriers to ensure that nothing is going to interrupt the flow of God's word in our lives? Flow of God's word into our lives, the flow of God's word out of our lives. Daily devotion, daily worship, personal worship. Consistent fellowship. Not because, not because, okay, Patrick's teaching is all that and, and you need it to live. No, you can, you can stay home and listen to better teaching on the web, and so can I. <laughs> so why are any of us here? Because we're called not just to know the Word, not just to, to feast on the Word, but to live the Word. And we're called to do that in community. The first place we practice the Word of God, the first place that, that it finds expression is, is, is in this family, with each other, because, because in the body of Christ, we give grace and, and we receive grace because we need grace. And together, as a, as a community built on grace, we go out and are witnesses for a gospel of grace to the, to the world. 
with different gifts, because none of us has all of them, different gifts operating in tandem, in, in unity. I know I'm preaching to the choir on Wednesday, but there's, there's a growing trend that I just can't ignore where church is not a weekly thing. It's, it's, it's barely a monthly thing for some people. It's a, it's a if I don't have anything else going on thing. That's dangerous. Because, because part of the value of assembling together is, is that's one channel of God's word into us. And it, and, 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 it, and it chokes out the opportunity that Satan has to get momentum behind his lies. We need God's word in our lives. And we need to see it lived out and making a difference in other people's lives. Too many people aren't doing that. Too many people aren't digging that tunnel, walling it off. And it's dangerous. I had somebody ask me this week, I guess they're making the, the Harbinger book into a movie now. And so I had somebody ask me, for the first time in years. Okay, so what do you think about the harbinger? Okay, if we're really on top of what God's word says, then we can start talking about what God's word doesn't say. If, if, we're, if we're reading the word and loving our families and, and taking time for prayer and, and, and worshiping God with our lives, when all of that is squared away, then we can talk about harbinger. If we're both doing, if, if we're both squared away. And here we have the fourth thing that Hezekiah counsels us. Have, have guys, guys of your guy, gals of your gal in your life that, that will help you deny Satan's water supply and ensure your own water supply and then defend yourself. Verse five, he strengthened himself, built up the wall that was broken, raised it up to the towers, built another wall outside, repaired the mellow in the city of David, made weapons and shields in abundance. And this, this, is, this is Ephesians 6 territory, and, and, and time's getting away from us, but you're familiar with the, with the armor of God passage. Take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day. Girded your waist with truth. The world wants to ask, is there such a thing as truth? What is truth? Who decides? Is what's true for you automatically true for me? Are you squared away on that? Do you know what's true? Do you know why it's true? putting on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Where has truth loved you? Are you saved? Are you sure you're saved? How do you know you're saved? Who saved you? How did he save you? Can you explain it to someone else? Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. We believe in a God that we can't see. We're trusting him to go before us. How is that wise? How is that reasonable? On what basis do you trust in an unseen God? Do you, do you, and do you know why? Can you explain faith to someone else? And, and can you anticipate what they're going to say in return, the doubts that they're going to express? And, and can you offer reasonable, rational responses to those objections? Take the helmet of salvation. Are you confident your eternity is secure, that no one and nothing can steal it? Can you preach that to yourself when you need to? And then we get into offense. Hezekiah made weapons and shield in abundance. Shields we've been talking about. What are our weapons? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with prayer and supplication on the Spirit. Do we know the Word of God well enough that we can confront Satan and his lies? How did Jesus prevail in the wilderness? He responded to Scripture with Scripture. He responded to the twisting of Scripture with Scripture. 
Do we know the, the word of God well enough that we confront Satan and his lies? Drive him out of our life, convince him to give up. That's what Jesus did. Three times, Satan came after Jesus, tried to develop doubts, tried to deny consequences, tried to promise prosperity. Three times Jesus said, okay, but this is where God's word says that you're wrong. Are you able to do that? And are you working so that you can do that even better? Don't leave it up to me to teach you God's word. We're not gonna, I don't, I don't think we're gonna be here long enough. We've been at it for 12 years together. I think Jesus is gonna come back before we finish going through God's word together. And it's, and it's, not, and it's also not really my goal. You can tell by the pace that we're going in Romans. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to teach some of God's word and we're going to get excited about it, but I hope that by getting excited about it together that we'll be reminded of the power that it has and we'll want to stay in it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, from Sunday to Sunday. Because God's word is our first weapon against the lies of the enemy. Not just to fight him to a stalemate, but to push him back. Gates of hell won't prevail against us. That means we're on the offense. We're counterattacking. Ukraine, you've been reading today, if you've been looking on the news, they're counter counterattacking. They're pushing Russia back. We need to bring the fight to Satan. Not just enduring him in our lives, but rejecting his presence, saying no to his influence, taking the fight to him. And verse 18, we're reminded of our second weapon, which is prayer. Verse 18 in Ephesians 6. Our, our second weapon, too often it's our secret weapon. So secret we don't even tell ourselves. You know, we, we, okay, so, so confession time. Sometimes I know that we're going to have prayer and worship on Wednesdays and I don't announce it. Because here's the conversation I have with myself. If I announce that there's prayer and worship, people are going to stay away. And on the one hand, part of me says, okay, that's not cool. That's not love. That's not, speak the truth and love, Patrick. Love hopes all things. Give people the benefit of the doubt. The thing is, I'm not wrong. <laughs> Experience tells me when we announce prayer, people stay away. And week over week, our prayer gatherings are sparse on Tuesdays and, and on Sundays. What, what is it about a prayer that our soul resists? It's an admission of dependence. Our flesh wants to be strong. Our flesh wants to work. Prayer reminds us that our work is only going to take us so far unless God is in it. Pastor Chuck, we, we can do more than pray after we've prayed. We can't do more than pray until we've prayed. And we need to do that more as a fellowship. And I need to lead us more in that as a fellowship. What would happen if we committed everything to just radical prayer and did nothing without bathing it, just saturating in a prayer? Man, I want to find out. God, God's been moving in our fellowship. I don't think anyone who's paying attention would deny that. Over these last four years, over a few years, over these last few months. I think, I think revival is grandiose, but God is alive and moving and he's changing lives in this fellowship. There's no denying it. But at the same time, what God is doing individually, collectively, is also inviting opposition. Because there's no denying that. We're experiencing resistance from the enemy to the point where some people have, have, have even fallen away from the faith. How do we prevent that? How do we keep the life that God has breathed into our fellowship from fading? It's the sum of everything we've been talking about. Having accountability, 
starving Satan, feeding on the word, fortifying our defenses, and going on the attack. And they're not things that the leadership of the church can do alone. We, I, I, we can name them, we can call them out. But to make them part of who we are takes more than just a few voices in the wilderness. Notice 2 Chronicles 32.6 as we close. Then he set military captains over the people, gathered them together to him in the open square of the city gate, and gave them encouragement, saying, Being strong and courageous, do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. There is one who is with us that's greater. <laughs> with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah, except they weren't Hezekiah's words. They were God's words, right? This is God's words to Moses in Deuteronomy 31. It's God's words to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. And as we wrap up tonight, they're God's words to us. I think it's not for nothing that, that God said, wait, slow down and, and spend another week in, 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 in this particular intersection of history. Satan uses people to pull us away from what God is doing. Satan uses our problems, and they're real problems, but Satan uses and leverages our problems to sow doubt. Satan uses people and problems to put our focus on ourselves. And when we camp out there and when we stay there, we lose. Hezekiah knew. Verse 6, 7, and 8. He knew the battle belongs to the Lord. So he didn't try to make it about him. He didn't say, hey, do it for the king. Do it for the throne. Do it for Jerusalem. He pointed people to God. He reminded them that it's about God. It's always about God. It's about God's promises. It's about God's faithfulness. It's about God's name. And he enlisted other people, other leaders, verse 6. And Hezekiah made it his specific mission, I'm going to build you guys up so that you can turn around and build other people up. I'm going to encourage you so you can go out and encourage others. I'm going to exhort you and strengthen you the best I can in these areas so that you can go out and exhort and build up other people. And that's our challenge. And it's the final application in the night of application. Maintain accountability. Starve Satan. Ensure our supply line is open, our, our water supply. Spend time with God in his word. Be steadfast in prayer. But, it, but besides doing those things, we need to encourage people in those things. God's doing exciting things, but we are under attack, make no mistake. Not surprising, it's very much the way it works. Whether you see it or not, whether it's real in your life yet or not, the enemy's coming after us. It's showing up in spiritual attack of every kind against individuals, against families, against ministries. There's distraction, there's accusation, there's condemnation. We have an enemy who hates us. He's very good at his job. He hates what God is doing. He despises the ground that God is gaining. He wants it back. What do we do? The things you've learned from me in part to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Part of my job is to be like Hezekiah and to say, hey, you're here on a Wednesday night. I want to encourage you in these things. Why? So you can go out and be encouragers. If you're here tonight, you've just been drafted. Not by me, by God. I knew I shouldn't have come. Too late. And it wouldn't matter because God's call on your life is still there. I'm just, I'm just articulating it. I'm just expressing it. God authored it. 
I'm just saying, hey, we've got an enemy of our soul and we get to fight him together. We've got to fight him together. Okay, but I'm not a leader in ministry, Patrick. It's Wednesday night. A lot of you are. <laughs> and if you're a leader in ministry here, hopefully you're listening. But look, if you don't have a badge, if you don't have a title, it doesn't mean that you're not a leader. If you're a parent, you're a leader. If you're a husband, you're a leader. If you have someone in your life who's, who's a newer believer than you are, if you're further down the road than they are, even if it's by a couple blocks, you're a leader. And part of the responsibility that we have as leaders is to encourage people in exactly these areas. Are you someone's accountability partner, someone's prayer partner? There's an accountability, there's a responsibility that comes with that. Have you led someone to the Lord? We're not the shepherding movement, but having been used by God in someone's life, do you, do you, do you, do you recognize that, that God wants to continue using you to speak into their life, to help them be discipled? Are you in ministry with someone and maybe you're not the head of the ministry, but, but you realize that, that you're older, maybe you're older in years or older in the Lord, but you're in a mentoring role? People listen to what it is that you're saying. You're a leader. Do you find yourself week after week sitting next to the same person because you sit in the same place and so do they and after you know saying hi and, and asking what's going on in their lives and how can you pray for them? You have a sense of where they're at and where they're prospering and where they're struggling. You've got an opportunity to be a leader because a leader is someone who asks questions and cares about the answer. It's not a badge. It's not a title. It's seeing where somebody is at and seeing where God is calling them to be and helping them get there. If you're here on a Wednesday night, you've got more than a casual commitment to the things of God. You've got more than a casual commitment to the work of God. You're here because you're seeing Calvary Wichita being used of God. Hey, be a leader. Encourage and remind people. Cultivate those relationships. Cut off the enemy's supply line. Prioritize your own. Pray without ceasing. Let's take it to Sennacherib. Let's occupy until Jesus comes. Lord, thank you for your love and your faithfulness. Thank you for your power and your word. Thank you for the strength and the wisdom the discernment, the gifting that you've given everyone here. Most of all, thank you for your grace. We look at these challenges, we look at these responsibilities and opportunities, and we can easily say, well, I fall so fall short. And, and Satan is there to say, yeah, you are. Yeah, you do. You're a loser. You're a slug but grace, but God. But today, we get to choose.